Let us pray. O God, who makest us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of thy only Son, Jesus Christ, grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. That is the collect for the Nativity of our Lord on Christmas Day. And uh, it's an appropriate one for the text that we are going to be looking at this afternoon. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Just a few brief verses. Verses 18 through the end of the chapter. 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Uh, Every year here at St. Philip's, and I'm sure in many other churches across the land, we sing the Christmas carols. Here at St. Philip's, we generally have Holy Communion, and when we finish with Holy Communion, and the altar is all dressed, we kneel down and in a candlelit sanctuary or nave, We sing the words, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. We all love that Christmas carol, and every time we sing it, we bear witness to the great miracle that Matthew is talking about here in Matthew chapter 1, and that is the miracle of the Lord's birth, the virgin birth, as it is oftentimes referred to. And yet it has to be said that while Christians have been doing this for centuries, and while Christians still do it in many parts of the world, the fact remains that there are few Christian doctrines that have come under greater criticism or more intense assault over the course of the past century than this one in particular. The miracle of the virgin birth has come under greater criticism than even the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's one that is very near and dear to the hearts of Christians, and yet it is one that is oftentimes, even from within the church, I'm sorry to say, severely attacked. Now the question is, why is that? Why is it that people struggle with the doctrine of the virgin birth? Well, it's a controversial doctrine. Before we get to it, let me just um, say a few words for absolute clarity. 
What's really being described here in Matthew chapter 1 is not a virgin birth. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, do you believe in the virgin birth? I want to encourage you to say yes, but technically that is not what we're talking about here. What Matthew is really describing here in his gospel is a virginal conception. There's a great deal of confusion about this today um, because people, when they hear virgin birth, they assume that it's simply a reference to what Matthew is talking about. But actually, the doctrine of the virgin birth is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It is not one, technically speaking, that Protestants ascribe to. Also, you'll sometimes hear of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And people assume that that's a reference to Jesus' birth. That is not a reference to Jesus' birth, and that too is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It is not one that Protestants necessarily subscribe to. So what's the difference between these things? A virginal conception is exactly what Matthew has described here in this gospel. It is the belief that Jesus Christ was born of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So when Mary conceived Jesus, she was a virgin. She had not had a relationship with any man up to that point. This was a supernatural intervention. This is not the virgin birth because what Roman Catholics believe is that two miracles took place at the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Of course, there was the miracle of the virginal conception nine months prior, but at the time of the birth, another miracle took place, and that is Mary remained a virgin even after Jesus was born, which is to say that the birth was not only supernatural in terms of its conception, but also in the delivery. The hymen was not broken, and Mary remained for the rest of her life a virgin. She never had any kind of what we would call normal marital relationship with Joseph. And that is why in the Protestant tradition, particularly in the Anglican tradition, we refer to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but Roman Catholics refer to her as Blessed Mary, ever virgin. All right? So you understand the distinction there? So technically speaking, and I said most people don't understand the distinction, so if somebody comes up to you and says, do you believe in the virgin birth, I hope you'll say, yeah, sure. But then go on to explain to them that Really, they don't understand what they're really believing in either. So what we're really talking about here is a virginal conception, not a virgin birth. It's not an immaculate conception, because the doctrine of the immaculate conception is the Roman Catholic belief that Mary was born without sin. All right? So the, the doctrine of the immaculate conception has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with the birth of Mary. Now, that is Roman Catholic tradition. It is not founded or warranted on anything that you necessarily find in the Gospels or in the New Testament. It's part of their tradition. So I just want you to understand the distinction. What we're really talking about here is a miracle. There's no doubt about it. It is a miracle, but it is a miracle that has to do with the conception, not with the birth itself. The birth, from what the Gospels tell us, was natural. I think this is one of the things that we have to come to terms with. Oftentimes at Christmas, we have those wonderful little creches that we set out, those wonderful little manger scenes, and they're so nice and sanitary and lovely and romantic. There was nothing lovely, romantic, neat, tidy, or clean about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
He came into this world the same way that you and I came into this world. And if you've ever been privy to a birth, you know it is messy. When I was a kid, every time we walked out the door and we didn't shut it, my grandmother would yell, were you born in a barn? (laughs) Well, Jesus was born in a barn. And that's a messy place if you've ever been there. It's an unsanitary place. Place. So I want you to understand the conception was extraordinary. It was miraculous. The birth itself was purely natural, not supernatural. Now, as I said, this is a controversial doctrine. There are few doctrines within the Christian faith that have come under a more severe attack than the doctrine of the virginal conception. And the question is why? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One reason is a textual problem. If you look at Matthew chapter 1 and you look at verse 22 and following, the gospel writer says this, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that is a direct quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And in the minds of many scholars, this is problematic. Because the Old Testament, of course, and Isaiah in particular, was written in Hebrew. And the word that Isaiah uses there, which is translated into English as virgin, is a word that can also be translated to mean a young girl of marriageable age. It does not necessarily mean a girl who has never had intimate relationships with a man. It can simply mean a young woman who's eligible to be married. And so some scholars have argued that really Isaiah in his prophecy was never talking about the fact that the birth of the Messiah was in any way going to be supernatural. He was simply saying that a young girl of marriageable age would have a child. Now the two Hebrew words that can be translated as virgin, one is the word Bethula, one is the word Alma. The problem, of course, is that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, what was known as the Septuagint, that passage in Isaiah is translated as a virgin. And so some have argued that when Matthew decided to quote Isaiah as the fulfillment of Jesus' birth, or as the, as the, the foreshadowing of Jesus' birth, which was the fulfillment of the prophecy, he misunderstood what the prophet was saying. The prophet was not describing anything supernatural. He was simply describing a natural birth by a young girl of marriageable age. So that's that's one of the big controversies associated with this text. What I would say to you in response to that is this. It doesn't really matter what Isaiah was thinking. The question is, what was Matthew thinking when he wrote this text? What did he think about the birth of Jesus Christ? This is something to keep in mind when you think about Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies oftentimes had a dual application. The prophet was not always aware that they were describing a future event. Now that's that's the only way we understand prophets today. When you think of a prophet, you generally think of somebody who foretells the future, don't you? You think of somebody like Gene Dixon or Nostradamus. Uh, Every time the new year comes out, you're standing in the line at the Piggly Wiggly or at the Harris Teeter or the Publix or wherever it is, and they have all of those magazines with all of the 
prognostications for the future year, don't you? All the prophets are coming out of the woodwork and they're describing all these things that we can expect to see in the coming year. Most of the time they're wrong, and if they are right, they're so general that anything can apply to them. Well, when we think of a prophet, that's what we think of. A better way to think of a prophet, biblically speaking, is a prophet is one who speaks for God. In the New Testament in particular, we're told that some were called to be prophets, some were called to be apostles and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ. The word prophet in the New Testament, more often than not, is simply another word for a preacher. One who speaks on behalf of God. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, prophets were speaking into a situation in their own time. They were addressing circumstances that they were dealing with. And it was only with the advantage of hindsight, as people looked back through the lens of Jesus Christ, that they realized that these prophecies that were addressing problems in the Old Testament also had a dual application for the future. So, regardless of what Isaiah was talking about back there, Matthew saw Isaiah's words as a fulfillment of exactly what had happened with Jesus. And Matthew understands the birth of Jesus to be something supernatural. When he uses the word virgin here, regardless of how Isaiah meant it, when he originally wrote his prophecy, Matthew is very clear, what was taking place here was something supernatural, something extraordinary, something divine. And we can see that very clearly from the way that the story is told. Now look again at what happens here. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's quite clear here in Matthew's understanding that this was something supernatural. After all, Joseph wanted to divorce her quietly, didn't he? And an angel, a messenger from God, had to be sent to him to set him straight. You know, we sometimes have a tendency to look back on people who lived in an ancient culture in the first century and we think, well, we're so far advanced. Those people lived in such a primitive age, they just didn't understand things the way we understand them today. Let me tell you something. It didn't matter if you live in the 21st century or in the 1st century. People know how babies were made. <laughs> and Joseph understood very well how babies were made. And he was. I mean, one of the things that's so powerful about this story is that it rings true. I mean, those of you who've had a daughter, if your daughter comes home and she tells you she's expecting a child, the first question you're going to ask is if she's unmarried, well, who's the father? Now, if your daughter turns around and says to you, well, I'll be honest with you, God is the father. <laughs> How many of you are going to say, oh, well, praise the Lord? You're not going to buy into it. Joseph wasn't going to buy into it either. When Mary came home and said, I'm expecting a child, his first reaction was, well, who is the father? And she says, well, the father is God. And we're told, being a just man, he decided to divorce her quietly rather than to put her to shame. 
See, the story has that ring of authenticity to it. So there's no doubt in Matthew's mind that what happened with Jesus was a miracle. Regardless of what Isaiah may have thought about a young girl of marriageable age, Matthew understands Mary to have been a virgin in the sense that she had never had relations with a man. God the Holy Spirit had come and impregnated her, and it was through this supernatural means that Jesus came into the world. There's also a little bit of an internal witness to this in the New Testament. Uh, turn, if you will, to John for just a moment. And what I mean by an internal witness is that there was evidently, even during Jesus' own life, some question as to what had happened at the moment of his birth. In other words, even though Jesus was raised in a household with an earthly father, Joseph, and an earthly mother, Mary, nevertheless, there were rumors floating about that there was something different, something strange about his birth. Now, some people who'd heard the rumors probably did not hold them in high esteem. And if they didn't like Jesus, they made up all kinds of other explanations. But my point is that there were questions regarding Jesus' birth that were floating around. There was something different about his birth. And we can see that here in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Uh, this is Jesus. Uh, he is engaged in a conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, you know that the scribes and the Pharisees were those who were Jesus' enemies. They were out to discredit him, to bring him down. They were intensely jealous of the popularity that he enjoyed with the people. And the one thing perhaps that they hated more than anything else was that when Jesus spoke, he was like E.F. Hutton. People listened to him. We're told that when he spoke, he spoke as one having authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. The only authority they had was a derived authority. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with absolute authority. He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so that's the context here. John chapter 8, verses 31 and following. Jesus is engaged with the Pharisees and the scribes, and they have been plotting his downfall, trying to discredit him, and he takes them on. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You know what that is? That is pride right there. Jesus said, Come follow me, and I'll reveal to you the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will liberate you. And immediately they got their backs up. What do you mean set us free? We've always been free. We're Jewish people. We're the children of Abraham. We've never been the slaves of anybody. Well, that was absolutely absurd. The whole story of the Exodus of God delivering his people from what? Slavery. <laughs> and they'd been slaves any number of points in their history. Slaves to the Canaanites, slaves to the Babylonians. They'd been carried off into exile. For all intents and purposes, at the time that Jesus was speaking these words to them, they were what? Vassals of the Roman Empire, slaves. But oftentimes when we hear the gospel and it describes us for what we really are, all of a sudden we take offense, don't we? Well, the people took offense here, but Jesus didn't back down. Verse 34, he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave, slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, for we have one father, even God. Now isn't that interesting? Their response to Jesus is what? We were not born of sexual immorality. The NIV, anybody have the NIV out there? New International Version of the Bible? How does that get translated, Gov? Illegitimate children, there you go. That's how it's translated. We are not illegitimate children. What was that? That was an attack on Jesus. In other words, there were rumors floating about that his birth was different. There were rumors floating about that Jesus was not really the child of Joseph. And the assumption was, well, if it wasn't the child of Joseph, he must be what? An illegitimate child, born of sexual immorality. So you see, even here in the New Testament elsewhere, there's the internal witness that there was something different about the birth of Christ. So there's no question that what the gospel writers are describing here is something that is truly unique. But at any rate, this is what has made the gospel of the virgin birth controversial. And many people have said, well, I simply won't believe in it because of this. But there is another reason why the doctrine of the virgin birth is controversial. And if the truth be known, I think this is the reason why many people are looking for excuses, like the one I've just described for you, to dispense with it. And that is because you and I are living in a post-enlightened age. We are all children of the 18th century, and we have been raised to be skeptics. How many of you are native South Carolinians? Well, we may be native South Carolinians, but a lot of us are from Missouri in our hearts. The show-me state. Show me, and I'll believe it. If I can see it, I will believe it. You know who my favorite apostle is next to Paul? Thomas. I've always thought that poor Thomas got a bad rap. I mean, how do we know Thomas today? As doubting Thomas. But you know, it was actually Thomas that when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and said, I must go there and I must die, and everybody else said, oh no, God forbid, you can't go up there to Jerusalem. It was Thomas who said, well, if he's got to go, let us go with him and die with him. That's pretty courageous, but nobody remembers courageous Thomas. We only remember one thing, don't we? Thomas the doubter. And that's because when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, Thomas was not with them. I suspect that he had been sent out on an errand. And when he comes back, Peter and James and John, all the rest said, Oh, you missed it. Missed what? Oh, Jesus showed up to us. What? Oh, yes, he's back from the dead. And what was Thomas's response? Again, it has this ring of authenticity to it. I don't believe it. 
I don't know what you guys have been smoking or drinking or whatever it is. That's the Miller amplified version of the story. But at any rate, he says, I'm not going to believe. In fact, he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I could do what? Take my hand and put it in his side. Take my fingers and put it in the nail prints. You show me and I'll believe. Well, you see, we've been raised in a skeptical culture, haven't we? We have been taught that miracles cannot take place. And I think this is the real reason why we struggle with things like the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why many people try to give lip service to these things but deny the supernatural element. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, for this reason, the question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. Every event which might claim to be a miracle is, in the last resort, something presented to our senses. Something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted. And our senses are not infallible. If anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we will always say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to experience. Translate philosophy worldview. It is therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled, as well as we can, the philosophical question. Now, what's Lewis saying there exactly? Well, he says this elsewhere. He says, in all of his life, he only knew one person who ever claimed to have seen a ghost. And he said, the funny thing was, that person didn't believe in the immortal soul before they saw the apparition, and they refused to believe in the immortal soul after they saw the apparition. Which just goes to show, he said, that seeing is not always believing. You know, people will oftentimes say to me, oh man, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. I I'm telling you, if God would part the Red Sea, I'd believe. How many of you have ever thought that? You know, just a little miracle. Part, don't even worry about the Red Sea. How about the Ashley River? <laughs> Stono Creek, whatever. Just, just, just a little miracle, then I could believe. But would we? You know, so oftentimes when people witness miracles, their response is what? There has to be, I don't know what it is, but there has to be a natural explanation. And we've grown up in a culture where a natural explanation, no matter how extraordinary or outlandish it is, is always better, we think, than a supernatural explanation, don't we? And I think this is the real reason why many people struggle with miracles like the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the healing ministries that the Lord performed. It's because we are by nature skeptics. And we've got to settle in our minds before we ever tackle the specifics, the general question of whether or not we think miracles can occur. Now here comes a long quote from C.S. Lewis. We not only have to settle in our minds whether miracles occur, we need to understand how they occur. See, we tend to think that if miracles occur, we should see them all the time. Why don't we see miracles today? Well, it may be that we do see them and we discount them. The other thing may be that we don't see great miracles today because if they happened every day, they would not be miraculous. 
And let's be honest, the, the definition of a miracle is something that by nature, by definition, is rare. Here comes the long quote by Lewis. He says, you are probably quite right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known to men. If your own life does not happen to be near one of those great ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely is that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide? That we should see a miracle is even less likely, nor if we understand shall we be anxious to do so. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch about the same periods of history, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. See, when we think of history and we think of the great events of history, we do think in terms of social, political, military history, don't we? We think of great peace treaties. We think of dictators and kings and emperors and presidents. That's how we think of history. But when you read the Bible, those are not the great turning points of history. The great turning points of history are not social or political history. They're spiritual history. Somebody once asked Kaiser Wilhelm what it felt like to be a man who made history. And he replied, men don't make history. They simply cling to the cloak of the Almighty as he passes by. Well, it's true, you see. And that's when you see the great miracles. The great miracles tend to bunch together around those great spiritual turning points. Spiritual history, not political or social history. So, for example, it's not surprising that there was a miracle at the time of Abraham. Abraham was called by God from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to be the father of many nations, but he was an old man. His wife was well beyond childbearing age. The scripture says he was as good as dead. What a terrible description of a couple. I mean, who wants that engraven on their tombstone? Sarah, well beyond childbearing age. Abraham, as good as dead. And yet God made a promise that through Abraham his descendants would be what? More numerous than the stars in the sky, the sand on the beach. And one day through him would come a savior, a redeemer of the world who would get the Adam project back on track. Well, that's a turning point, you see. It's not a turning point in world history. It's not the sort of things that secular historians are particularly interested in. But it's sacred history. And it really is one of those events that changes the whole course of history itself. So it shouldn't be surprising then that we should see a miracle there. That Sarah, in spite of her old age, Abraham, in spite of his advanced years, should experience a miracle and have a son. And through that son would come a savior. What's another great event in the history of God's people? Well, certainly, for over four centuries, they lived in captivity in Egypt, 
under the cruel lash of Pharaoh, building bricks without stone, and God decided what? He was going to deliver his people. And he did. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. Is it any surprise then that we should see miracles take place at that great turning point in history? That's why we're told that God delivered his people by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. Do you know that the oldest piece of Hebrew poetry in existence comes from this time period? It's called the Song of Miriam. Here it is in Hebrew. Shiru Yahweh, Kigaho Gaha, Sus Karokovo, Ramah Veam. It says, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed over his enemies. The horse and the rider he has cast into the sea. That's a great turning point in the history of God's people. And so it's not surprising that we should see a miracle there. It's not surprising that we should see a great miracle, the fall of the walls of Jericho at the time that God's people took possession of the promised land. He had delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt for the purpose of taking them to a place of their own. But for 40 years they wandered into the wilderness. But when the time came, the time was right for them to take possession God intervened on their behalf. Is it any surprise? This is one of the great turning points you see in the history of God's people. But then from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, there were hundreds of years. No miracles took place. No great things happened. In fact, there was a famine in the world for the word of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, when the time was right, that's how the New Testament describes it. It's a wonderful thing, the way that the birth of Jesus Christ was right. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to do what? To redeem those under the law. Is it any surprise that when God finally acted to send a Savior into the world that we should see a miracle? That's a turning point, you see. Is it any wonder that then over the course of the next 33 years or so, as the Savior walked the earth, we should see miracles. Is it any wonder that Jesus, because He is the centerpiece of all history, because He is God incarnate, is it any surprise then that we should see miracles during His lifetime? Whether they be the healing miracles, the restoration of the sight to the blind, the lame are given the ability to walk again, the deaf have their ears unstopped, even the dead are raised. That's exactly what we would expect during the time of Jesus. We would expect this Jesus, who was the Word made flesh, to exercise dominion over the powers and the elements of nature. And is it any surprise that this Jesus would be raised again? See, we see miracles during this time period because this was a turning point in the history of the world. And even at the beginning of the life of the church itself, which is to be the new Israel, God's instrument to bring redemption to the world, we should see miracles. The apostles like Peter, healing that lame man at the temple gate called Beautiful, or we should see a miraculous intervention in the conversion of the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. So yes, miracles do take place, but Lewis was quite right. They have a tendency to bunch up at these great crossroads, these great ganglions of sacred, not social and secular history. So, some people wrestle with the whole notion of miracles. But let's just pause and think about this for a minute. If you can believe that there is a God, and what's interesting is the vast majority of people in America still believe in God. 
Now, they may not necessarily believe in the Christian God, but most of us take a look at the world around us and we admit that it's hard to believe. It, it takes more faith to believe that this all happened by chance or by accident than it does to believe that there was at least a divine architect of the universe. How many of you would at least agree with that? That's one of the things that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Paul says that, okay, maybe agnosticism is understandable, but atheism is not. He says, because God has made himself known in the things that have been made. His signature is written all across creation. Well, let's just pause for a second and talk specifically about miracles like the virgin birth or the resurrection. If you can believe in a God who can create the universe ex nihilo out of nothing by the sheer power of his word, every atom, every fiber, every molecule, all the vast expanse of interstellar space, the planets and the stars in their courses. If you can believe in a God who can do that, let's be honest, folks, virgin birth, that's small potatoes. Isn't it? I mean, logically, that's nothing. A virgin birth, a resurrection for a God like that is child's play. So we've got to wrestle, you see, with this. When people say, oh, I can't believe in miracles, why? Why? It could be that they simply have never taken the time to explore it. It could be that they don't like what the miracle will mean for their lives, the implications. There is another controversy, however, when it comes to the story of the Lord's birth. And that is the fact that we have parallel accounts here. Matthew describes the birth of Jesus here in chapter 1, but Luke also describes the birth of Jesus. And some who have been very critical of the biblical narrative have pointed out that there are inconsistencies between these two accounts. Now what's interesting is that both Matthew and Luke come across as very Jewish accounts. It's unique. Now we know, we've already talked about the fact that Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. So we shouldn't be surprised that Matthew's account is very Jewish in its character. Luke, however, was not Jewish. He was Greek. And he writes in a very high Greek style. And yet his account of the birth of Jesus Christ is like a sea of Judaism or like a, an island of Judaism in a sea of, of Greek thought and writing which indicates to us that he probably got his information from a very early source. But there are differences. Even though they are both Jewish accounts, there are differences. People have pointed out, for example, that Luke speaks of an angel coming and speaking to Mary, the angel Gabriel, who came and enunciated or announced the birth of the child to her. In Matthew's version, however, there's no mention of the angel coming to Mary. It simply tells us that the angel came to Joseph. So there is a difference there. Luke speaks of the first coming to see Jesus being the shepherds who worship the infant Christ. What's interesting is that here in Matthew, there's no mention of the shepherds, is there? Keeping watch over their flocks by night. Instead, we're told magi came from the east to worship the newborn Christ. There's no mention of the magi in Luke's version. Others have pointed out that Luke begins with Mary and Joseph in Nazareth, and they make their way to Bethlehem under orders from Caesar Augustus because a census was being taken. Matthew begins 
in Bethlehem and moves to Nazareth. And so some people pointed out, well, these are obvious inconsistencies here, so you can't take these accounts seriously. How do we respond to that as Christians? Well, whenever you're faced with parallel accounts in the Gospels, whether it has to do with the birth of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you're only faced with three options. There are only three explanations for these parallel accounts. Reuben Torrey, who was a great scholar uh, in the last century, did a lot of work on this and was very helpful. He said that when you're dealing with parallel accounts, one of three options. The first is that the parallel accounts were created by collusion. That is to say, the writers got together and they decided what they were going to say and they wrote the accounts side by side together. You can imagine how this might possibly work. Uh, Matthew decides that he's going to undertake the job of writing a gospel to tell the story of Jesus' life. And as he's working on his gospel, he is notified that there is this other fellow out there, Luke, who is also writing a gospel, a biography of the life of Jesus. And Matthew contacts Luke, and he basically says, hey, listen, if, if, if we're going to both write a gospel account, we probably ought to sit down and compare notes. Uh, let's at least get the story right so we don't send a mixed message to people. So that's one way in which the gospel writers could write parallel accounts. By, by collusion, they got together. And it's not always designed to be something that is underhanded or deceptive. Sometimes they do. They just want to get the account accurate. And so some people have argued perhaps what we have in parallel accounts is collusion. Well, what's the problem with the idea that these accounts were written by collusion? Well, the whole complaint is that there are differences here. If they had colluded, if they'd gotten together and said, let's get our story right, or even if they had decided to take their information from a third unknown source, it wouldn't explain the differences in the accounts. So some people have argued, well, if parallel accounts didn't come into existence by collusion, then perhaps they came into existence separately. Matthew wrote his gospel in one part of the world, and Luke wrote his gospel in another part of the world, and all of a the sudden these gospels were published, they got disseminated, distributed out into the church, and lo and behold, that's why there are so many differences. Well, it's possible. But that doesn't explain why there are so many profound similarities. There are differences between the gospel accounts, there's no doubt about that. Even at the time of the resurrection, you can see that there are differences. There are differences in the gospel accounts as to how many angels actually appeared at the tomb. How many women actually were there and witnessed the resurrection or found the tomb empty. There are all kinds of differences like that. Now, they're not major differences. They are minor differences. What is so profound is that in spite of the minor differences, the general thrust of all four of the gospels is the same story. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you may see some slightly different aspects, but for the most part, the story, the overall theme is exactly the same. Jesus Christ came into this world. While he walked among us, he was a great teacher. People were drawn to him. He performed great miracles. He claimed to be the savior of the world. He was crucified by order of the Roman authorities because he'd been plotted against by the Jewish authorities. And lo and behold, he was placed in the tomb for three days. He lay there. And then on the third day, what? He was raised again. He appeared to his disciples and he ascended into heaven. 
it's all there in the other gospel. So you can say, well, there are minor differences, but what accounts for the fact that they were all the same in their general theme? So if it's not by collusion that parallel accounts come into existence, and if it's not by the fact that they were produced separately, what is the other explanation? Well, the other explanation, which is the logical explanation, is that what the gospel writers are writing down is what they received or what they saw. And while many of them saw the same events, they saw them from a different angle. If you've ever been a witness to a traffic accident, you understand how this works. Police officer can have four different witnesses, and while the general thrust of their testimony will be the same, the details are oftentimes different. Now, why is that? They saw the same accident at the same time. They saw it from a slightly different perspective. And that's really what we have here in the Gospels. We have a slightly different perspective. Turn, if you will, Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, for a moment to John for just a second. John chapter 8. Here's a familiar story. Beginning at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now, you know how this works. Now, this was all designed to be a test for Jesus. There were all kinds of tests like that. This test was designed to entrap him because if Jesus on the one hand said, well, the law is the law and I did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, go ahead and stone her, then the people are going to say, ah, oh, well, where's all the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that you talk about? On the other hand, if Jesus said, well, forgive her, there's nobody perfect, then they would have said, ah, you see, he's no friend of the law. He's no friend of Moses. The law says that such a woman should be stoned. How does Jesus respond? Now they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that's a familiar story. You all know it. Part I want you to notice is that while they were questioning Jesus, what was he doing? He bent down in the dust and he wrote. And he stood up and he said, You who have no sin, cast the first stone. And then he knelt down and he continued to write in the sand. What did he write? What did he write? That's exactly right. We don't know. Now, there's been all kinds of speculation throughout the centuries. Some people have said, well, what Jesus was really writing were the sins of all those people standing around there. And when they saw their own sins, they said, oh, lo and behold, I, I can't do anything. And having been discovered, they 
begin to sneak away. But the gospel doesn't say that's what Jesus wrote. That's speculation, you see. Makes for a wonderful sermon. <laughs> but the gospel doesn't tell us what he wrote. Other scholars have insisted that what Jesus probably wrote was a passage from the Old Testament, which said she shall be stoned, but the passage from the Old Testament also said that her accusers must be the first to cast the stone. And given the climate, given the fact that this event took place right near the Antonia Fortress where the Roman soldiers were, they were fearful of taking action. That, to me, is a much more logical explanation, but the reality is it's speculation just like the first explanation. The reality is we don't know. And C.S. Lewis, who was an expert in literature, said, that's what makes the story so compelling. He said, that's how you know it's an eyewitness account. If somebody had made it up, they'd have told us exactly what he wrote. The reality was somebody witnessed this event, and they saw Jesus write in the sand. They don't know what he wrote, so they recorded it as they saw it. See, that has the ring of authenticity to it. And I want you to understand, regardless of what the world is saying, in terms of skepticism regarding the miracles, in terms of skepticism regarding the virginal conception or the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, or the healing ministries, these things have the ring of authenticity to them. And the reality is, in a world which is created by a God who is all-powerful, who is eternal, these things are small potatoes. There is no reason for us to doubt it. It is the great miracle that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, at one point in human history, by divine intervention, came down and tabernacled among us. What a glorious message that God deigned to make his presence known to us. So it is an extraordinary story. It is the grandest story the world has ever heard. And yet when you read it here in Matthew, it is so simply told. This is the birth of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is what John is describing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know John's prologue that the word is translated as, well, the term that is translated as word is the word logos. You know that? What is the logos? Well, there was a famous Greek philosopher centuries before Jesus. His name was Heraclides. And he was the one who said that the world in which we live is in a constant state of flux and change. Nothing remains the same. He was the one that said if you step into a river and step back out of it, it's not the same river again. It is changed. And one of his disciples came up to him one day and they said, tell us, why is it, teacher, that if the world is in a constant state of change, that there seems to be order in the universe? There, there may be constant change, but it seems to be an ordered change. There seem to be laws that govern things. And Heraclides responded, that is because there is a logos, there is a word that governs the change. Now, what John did in his gospel was he took that Greek philosophical idea and he applied it to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says this amazing thing. He said, and the Word that holds all things together became flesh 
The Greek word for flesh is sarx. It means flesh, blood, bone. It's what you and I got up with this morning. It's what we washed this morning. It's what some of us shaved this morning. Flesh. There's no story like that in all of antiquity. There's no story like that in all history that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a grand story. And yet, as I said, Matthew tells it so simply. Listen again to verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is how the story of Jesus' birth is told. You know, there are only two or three words that have more than one syllable in that whole verse. One of the words is Jesus. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Otherwise, every other word is one syllable. So simple and yet so profound. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people. Save his people from their sins. There is a great piece of artwork in the City Museum in Manchester, England, a painting done by the famous Pre-Raphaelite artist Holman Hunt. If you've ever been to St. Paul's Cathedral or Keeble College, Oxford, you've seen another one of his famous works. It's Jesus knocking on the door of the heart, the light of the world. You've seen that painting? Now, the Pre-Raphaelite artists were those who were very romantic. They felt that the world had become too realistic, and they believed in works that should be romantic, and works that have, should have great symbolic significance. Now, some people regard their works as a little sappy, but actually they were very serious-minded artists, and they produced profound works. My famous by, favorite work by Holman Hunt is not The Light of the World at St. Paul's Cathedral. It's this one called The Shadow of Death. And it shows Jesus, before he started his public ministry, working obviously in Joseph's carpenter shop. He's been working hard. One of the things I love about it is that Jesus is svelte. He's not sort of weak and pasty. He was a strong man. Working in Joseph's carpenter shop, you can see all of the wood carvings on the floor. And he's just stood up. You know, that's backbreaking work, and he's just stood up, and he's stretching, and as he is stretching, the light is coming through the window and casting a shadow on the back wall. And you can see a tool rack back there, and it almost gives the impression and the shadow of crucifixion. Now, you'll notice down in the front of the painting, there is a woman. That's supposed to be his mother Mary. She is opening a chest in which you can see a number of items, the gifts of the magi, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. What's the message the painting is trying to confer from the moment of his birth until the moment of Calvary? The cross was the shadow over Jesus' entire life. That he was born 
for the express purpose of dying. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and took on human form and walked among us for one purpose and one purpose above all others, and that is to give His life as a ransom for many. Do you understand that that is what the Christian story is all about? And that is why the main goal of the enemy is always to get rid of the cross of Christ. Do you understand that the real significance of Bethlehem is that it is the first step on the road that will lead us to Calvary? You shall give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a glorious name. Have you ever thought about all the names for Jesus in the Bible? There are wonderful names for Jesus. Many, many, many. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Prophet, the Priest, the King, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Lord, the Almighty, the Good Shepherd, the Door, the Bishop and Shepherd of our souls. He is the Lamb, the Light of the World, the Bread of Heaven, the Rock, the Redeemer, the Fountain, the Beloved, the Head over all, the Resurrection and the Life, and the list goes on and on. But of all the names for Jesus, of all the titles for Jesus, certainly the most precious has to be the one that we have right here in Matthew. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This Jesus, who is all of these things, who came into this world to die for your sins and for mine, who was born for the express purpose of offering himself up on the cross, did it all for one purpose, that God might be among us. That the creator of the heavens and the earth might be among us and that we might have a relationship with him. That's why it was done. And I think that's why in the divinely inspired imagination of Charles Wesley, he was able to write those words, words which I think are the greatest Christmas carol of all, certainly in terms of its theology. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Lo, in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. God among us. See, that's the glory of Christmas. God among us. Not up there, distant, removed from a fallen and wicked humanity, but God among us, taking on human flesh, walking among us, redeeming us, saving us, restoring us, making us new. That really is, in many respects, the theme of this Gospel of Matthew. I want you to notice something as we finish. The Gospel of Matthew begins here in the very first chapter with the story of God himself coming among us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The rest of the Gospel of Matthew deals with what? The story of Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. It is the story of God among us. But I want you to notice how the Gospel of Matthew ends. We're going to do something unusual. We're going to go to the whole way to the end of the Gospel right now. 
So if you decide you don't want to come back next week, you can say, well, we did the first part and I saw the end. I know how it all comes out. But I want you to see, here at the beginning, you have the story of God with us. The content of Matthew is the story of God with us. I want you to notice how the Gospel of Matthew ends. The very last words of this Gospel. Chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what being a Christian is all about. The story of Bethlehem is the story of the God who comes among us. It's the story of the God who offers himself as a ransom for many that you and I might have a relationship with him. And he is the God who makes the promise that when we belong to him, he will be with us. Emmanuel, always, even unto the end of our days. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We live in a skeptical age, but we glory in the miracle of Christmas. We glory that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the virgin conceived the child, child of the Most High, and that he, the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, that we might know him and be known by him, and that we might be with him for all eternity. As we come to Christmas this year, Lord, we pray that we would glory in the mystery and rejoice in the majesty of the newborn king. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.